Welcome to another edition of This Week in Digital Trust, 11M's regular conversation about all things tech policy, privacy and cybersecurity. I'm Arj, joining you today from Awabakal country, and I'm joined again by Jordan. Hi, Jordan. Hey, Arj. I'm on Wurundjeri country as usual, and looking forward to a chat. We're going back to Europe today. You ready? Yeah, I'm, I am ready. I'm always ready to go back to Europe. Um, <laughs> in person would be nice, but yeah, via the news is also kind of cool. Um, yeah, big news a couple of weeks ago out of Europe on the privacy front. Mega, mega fine issued to Meta. Um, 1.2 billion euros record fine by the Irish Data Protection Commission. Got a lot of attention, I think, not just because it's a big number, which it obviously is, but also because it has some potential consequences for transferring data between the EU. So, um, yeah, pretty interesting. And also just like, it's a big fine. It's, what was it? 1.2. 1.2 billion euro. Which is like a pretty significant proportion of all of the fines that have ever been levied under the GDPR as well. Like we were talking about that with Mel a couple of weeks ago. And I think the number of total fines was like around the 3 billion euro mark. And so, like, a single 1.2 billion is like, yeah. Yeah. So, we're going to talk about that and actually try to break it down a little bit. Like, what does it actually mean and what, what's this fine actually for? But um, many of our listeners might not know is that this huge, consequential, globally significant decision can be traced back to the activities of one particular guy, a guy called Max Schrems, who's a bit of an activist. He's an Austrian guy. And I've been working with you and, and, and sort of talking privacy for some years. And you always hear Max Schrems, Max Schrems, because he's this sort of mythical figure, it seems, you know, when it comes to privacy activism, but never really sort of stared into like, what is he all about? And, you know, on the back of this decision, this huge decision, it seems only fitting to kind of Go back and let's like see what's this guy's beef all about that has led to these kind of globally significant decisions. So we might do that as well. Yeah, he's an interesting character and yeah, has his name on a number of very significant privacy rulings of the Court of Justice of the EU, which is, you know, Europe's highest court. Got his name on a couple very significant privacy rulings and, you know, was obviously the person behind this complaint about Meta that resulted in this 1.2 billion euro fine. So yeah, pro- probably the most successful privacy advocate, privacy complainant in our times. So yeah, for sure. We'll uh, talk about his backstory in a little bit, but let's talk about this ruling first. So um, it was a few weeks ago now, but basically the news came out that Meta was being hit with a record 1.2 billion euro fine. The fine was issued by the Irish Data Protection Commissioner, which is the lead regulator in the EU for Facebook based on where it's headquartered. In addition to the fine, there were some rulings around the transfer of data. Basically, Meta has been given five months to stop transferring user data to the United States, which is kind of its practice is to sort of send stuff back, back to its home country, if you like. And this ruling kind of came on the back of a 2020 EU court ruling that had said that a certain data transfer pact, and we'll explain these terms through the conversation, but there was a certain data transfer pact that Facebook was relying on to transfer data back to the US, but there had been a ruling in 2020 that invalidated that pact, but Meta kind of continued to make these transfers anyway. So that's kind of the nub of it is that they were sort of in violation 
of, you know, the, the regulations around data transfers. Yeah, that's it. Probably worth just noting that this was a long time coming. There was something like 10 years of litigation involving the Irish DPC to get to this point. Meta is going to appeal the ruling. They've described it as being unjustified and unnecessary. Um, but yeah, long time coming. And as we said, the starting point can be traced back to this guy, Max Schrems. Yeah. And just to give you a sense of this Schrems guy, he had a statement after the fine saying that really the fine should have been and could have been much higher. And, you know, the maximum potential fine was more than $4 billion. And he says, you know, Meta knowingly broke the law to make a profit for 10 years. And so he was disappointed with $1.2 billion. So, you know, he really, really goes at him. I love it. Never happy privacy activist, yeah, I tell yeah, you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah oh, he's got to be popping some champagne after this one, though. <laughs> Okay, context. There's a bit of history that I want to go through to kind of understand what this decision is about. And I think it's really interesting. And it starts with this basic principle of pretty much all privacy laws, which is that if you move data from one country to another, you know, if you as a company move my data from Australia to the US or the EU, you have an obligation under Australian privacy law to make sure that wherever you move it, it's subject to essentially equivalent protections. So if I have a right under Australian law or a protection under Australian law, but you choose to hold my data in the US, you need to somehow assure to me, provide confidence protection of that data to the standard of Australian law. And just to play the dummy, because it's a, a good role for me to play this conversation on this topic, why would a company move my data offshore to another country? Is this because they want to, there's a cheaper data center or a data center they have an arrangement with? What are the scenarios in which they're taking my data and sending it overseas? Yeah, it could be a bunch of things. You could be an Australian company storing data on Microsoft Azure or, you know, Amazon cloud services, some kind of cloud storage. You could be an American company like Facebook serving a online service into Australia and repatriating that data back to your home country where you're doing your analytics and running your business and selling your ads. But, you know, the service is provided in Australia. So it it's both those Australian companies offshoring data, but also international companies collecting data in Australia or in the EU under Australian or EU law and then bringing that data home. So, yeah, in the EU-US meta context, it's Meta obviously serving services in the EU, bringing that data home. Yeah, and it's probably something just to emphasize because I think it's, it's a symptom of the rapid kind of globalization around technology as well. We're suddenly, like where we were a couple of decades ago, serviced by all these globally based firms with partners and technology infrastructure all around the world. So, you know, when I as an Australian citizen fill out a form or give my data to what I think is a company in my country, there's this big kind of trail that is possible behind them that could lead to a countries all over the place. Yeah, and you think of the range of services that Australian companies use. You know, any company of any large size will have a, you know, customer relationship management software that might be cloud-based, it might be run out of American data centers, they'll have data storage, they'll have all sorts of software that the company uses that might have data flows elsewhere. So 
Overseas data flow is very common. And so there's this fundamental principle of most privacy laws, which is if you let data flow outside of the country, but you collected it under Australian law, then you've got to make sure that those protections still apply. And so that really is the obligation that's the root of this finding. And there's this really long history of the relationship between the Europeans' privacy laws and US surveillance laws that underpins this most recent decision against Facebook. And it starts all the way back in 1995, pre-GDPR. It was called the Data Protection Directive, but it was the EU's privacy law prior to GDPR. Enacted in 95, it had this fundamental rule, right, that you know, you've got to protect data if you offshore it. Under that law, there was an agreement between the EU and the US called the Safe Harbor Scheme, because the US doesn't have a federal privacy law. So in order to meet this requirement, there was this framework set up by the US government that would let US companies join a voluntary scheme where they commit to higher privacy standards, essentially equivalent to the European law. And so that would give them a grounds for claiming that the data they move to the US is subject to the same protections, right? You can make complaints, you've got rights, we'll delete it, we'll, we'll provide transparency, we'll do all of these things. And so it kind of sounds like these are sort of political level agreements between countries that, you know, in the interest of, you know, wanting to see global trade and that kind of flow between countries that the governments of the day, the US and the, you know, European Commission or the EU strike these agreements at a sort of national level, at a political level, because they want to create some sort of safe framework under which that data can flow. Yeah, that's it. I mean, it can happen at a bunch of different levels. Between the EU and the US, it's been at the political level, providing these like legal structures that would enable those data flows. In Australia, we've been talking about EU adequacy in the law reform context. We've been talking about just drafting our new privacy laws to a standard that the EU would see as adequate uh, protection. So that's another way you can just bake it into the privacy laws. I think Israel, as an example, does largely that. Their privacy laws are very much just pegged to the European standard. And so do the Europeans basically have some sort of list of like these jurisdictions are all adequate in our eyes? Exactly. These countries- So you can do what you like, yeah. send it, send your data off to that country because we believe their protections are equivalent to ours. Exactly. And that adequacy is a really valuable thing for a country to have because it lets companies move data back and forth without anything else. If a country like Australia is not adequate, then in order to ship data from the EU to Australia, you have to have other mechanisms for ensuring that privacy protection. So that's like contractual terms or binding rules or, or like it could be technical protections like encryption and controls around data in a practical sense to make sure that those privacy rights are respected. But that, you know, putting that in place, those kinds of extra protections is difficult and expensive. And so the, the much preferable situation is there's a governmental agreement or there's a adequacy decision and you can just do what you like. So there's this long history between the EU and the US of kind of trying to set up an adequacy program and essentially Max Schrems, as an individual, making a complaint, bringing a legal action and tearing it down. 
So it started with the Safe Harbor Scheme in 2000, which worked fine as a set of protections that American companies would apply to data that met the Europeans' requirements. That was fine until Edward Snowden leaked a whole bunch of information about US spying, in particular a thing called the PRISM program, which we won't get into, but it was essentially showed that the US government had a whole bunch of access into data that was held by US telecom and IT service providers. And so a lot of that European data that was transferring to the US under the Safe Harbor Scheme really had kind of unsupervised access for the US spying agencies. And in terms of rights of Europeans, that was a problem. So Max Schrems makes this complaint, and ultimately the European Court of Justice, in a decision called Schrems 1, ruled that safe harbour scheme invalid because of that spying access. Then 2016, the EU and the US come up with a new scheme, you know, stronger protections called the EU Privacy Shield. In 2020, exactly the same thing happens. Schrems makes a complaint. European Court of Justice finds that that second try, the Privacy Shield, isn't enough either. And the finding is essentially the same as the first time, right? That the US government has the power to access Europeans' data for surveillance in a way that's not sufficiently supervised, it's not proportionate, and it doesn't respect EU citizens' rights. So that's two times over kind of a decade where Schrems, like more or less as an individual mover, like there's other people involved, but like brings these cases based on US's kind of ability to spy on EU citizens. And so that's the one that Having been ruled invalid, the finding now that we're talking about is that Meta continued to transfer data of EU citizens to the US. And Schrems again has said, well, you know, what's the story here? You know, there's no valid under agreement. There's no valid data transfer pact under which this should be happening. And the DPC has now found that, yes, that is the case. And so that's where the fines have kind of come from. That's it. That fine is for breaching that fundamental obligation to ensure that if you ship EU data offshore, ensure that it's subject to the same level of protections. You know, the EU Court of Justice said that data in the US doesn't have an equivalent level of protection because of this US spying. I mean, the the US spying, the surveillance program seems like a fairly formidable elephant in the room here. Like it's, it's just, it is the thing where this all breaks down, isn't it? Because you would imagine that any organization now in the, since 2020, since that last agreement was ruled invalid, could find themselves in a similar situation to Meta if there was a complaint lodged against them. Because any data being transferred to the US is subject to the surveillance of the US government and so therefore is invalid. So, you know, all of the big tech companies that have headquarters or large data centers or infrastructure back in the US, you know, Amazon, Google and so forth, it's kind of there but for the grace of God, I would imagine, um, for them. Yeah, you'd think so. I mean, that was one of the reactions to this Irish DPC determination is that like, well, what do you want us to do to stop? you know, US spying, um, there is genuinely not a lot that these companies can do other than like not transfer data to the US or, you know, encrypt it on the EU side and, you know, no one in the US has the keys or something, but that's whether that's practical with their 
business models. Who knows? But um, yeah, so I, I think that's true. And I think that's why you see the attempts to enable data transfers to provide equivalent protection in the US. They have to be at the government level. There is very little that an individual company can do. And so there's this new framework that's being negotiated between the EU and the US called the Data Privacy Framework, which, you know, SHREMS might, we might get a SHREMS 3 in a few years and end up getting invalidated. But that framework includes like specific limitations on US intelligence agencies' access to Europeans' data. So it includes like undertakings from the US federal government and spy agencies to say, look, we will only access Europeans' data in certain circumstances where it's necessary and proportionate to protecting national security and there's a complaints mechanism and so on, and that's getting offered at the kind of government level to deal with this concern. Uh, <laughs> I think your preview of Schrems 3 might be quite spot on because he, he's actually, you know, in his kind of statements on the back of the, the most recent ruling, he's already sort of made a comment that he thinks the new EU-US deal he thinks has about a 10% chance of not being killed by the CGEU. Uh, and ultimately, you know, unless US surveillance laws get fixed, we're back in the same boat again. So, yeah, we may well see Schrems 3. And, and if we do, I mean, He's won two out of two. I'd back him on that third one. But, I mean, I think one of the interesting things that's coming out of this conversation and hearing you describe this is that this ruling is largely about the, I guess, the liabilities around the US surveillance program. Like, I think a lot of people might see this headline around Meta fined $1.2 billion and think that this was ultimately really about their practices as a social media platform. Like all of those things that we often talk about, the tracking and the, the data collection and the sort of really sloppy use of personal data. It is about that to some extent, but really the bigger picture thing that it's about is about US surveillance. They're not so much, you know, ruling on how the Facebook as a platform uses targeted advertising or the surveillance economy in that sense. It's the US government surveillance that's at issue here. It, it's not the private surveillance economy of meta and big tech platforms, and it's not really about their practices. The fine is for shipping Europeans' data to the US in full knowledge that the US government surveillance system would infringe on Europeans' rights. That's essentially what the fine is. I mean, Schrems, though, has a number of other complaints that Meta and others are breaching Europeans' rights in the EU. But yeah, this particular one is just about that surveillance question, which I think is like, makes it really interesting just the sh the impact that Schrems has had or this combination of like Snowden leaks and Schrems legal cases has like really like he's successfully extracted commitments from the US government to ensure that US intelligence surveillance of European citizens fits within, you know, human rights bounds, which I think is a, like, remarkable achievement. Completely. I mean, it's, yeah, he's one guy, he's only 35, and he's making some pretty big <laughs> waves.
Should we talk about him? Should we explore a little bit more about the backstory of this guy? Yeah, so who is this guy? Well, so as, as we've sort of hinted at, he's an Austrian lawyer and activist. He is only 35. He's now founded this NGO called None of Your Business, N-O-Y-B, which- Which we've talked about a couple of times in the context of other complaints, yeah. And it's basically, you know, it's been described as sort of a, an organization that its objective is to create more Max Schrems. It's there to sort of help people- pursue these lawsuits because there is a financial cost associated with this. You have to stump up some cash and whatnot. But, um, yeah, he's a really interesting guy. I mean, like I said, I didn't know much about him. You know, you, you think about some of the legislation that we're dealing with and the sorts of concepts we're dealing with, and it seems quite dry, and I just had this very dull impression of him. But he's actually... If you watch his interviews, he's quite a sort of funny and sarcastic and snarky character. Like he's got, he's got a good sense of humor. He swears a bit, you know, when he's describing how frustrated he is and, um, talks about doing little things that just a little bit of snark, like using a Facebook app to create a, a class action suit and get more Facebook users to sign up. And he sort of, so he's kind of jujitsuing Facebook using its own app against them. But, um, yeah, it was interesting to hear his, the sort of backstory and the motivation where a lot of these lawsuits came from. He describes being, you know, a 20-something law student who actually went to the US to take some courses in the US. And one of the lectures was actually uh, the Facebook privacy lawyer who kind of came to the class to sort of talk about their approach to data privacy. And Schrems was in the room and um, found that this Facebook data privacy lawyer was quite blasé about compliance, particularly around how it treated the data of Europeans. And that sort of set him off. He sort of thought, well, hang on, we've got a set of laws that grant us certain protections. And this guy is just sort of turning up and saying, well, you know, we're not that fussed about it. Um, separately, in other interviews, he talks about this kind of mindset that he comes across in this kind of American business school community where the law was something that you can kind of make an evaluation on. Like, is it likely we're going to be prosecuted? And, you know, what is the fine? And it's just a completely business decision, whereas he's coming out of this European context, which is like, no, I have this right. It's not a question of you evaluating whether you think you can get away with it and if the cost, if you didn't get away with it, was a big deal and so you do it anyway. No, I have this right. So he, he kind of got a bit of a fire lit under him and starts to put in requests for his own data and, and is shocked at how much Facebook is collecting him and then that starts, you know, it starts the complaints. And off he goes. I love him as this, like, embodiment of the difference of culture. Like, it's just such a good example of it, like that clash of, like, European rights-minded versus the business practical risk-based approach to the law that Silicon Valley is moving fast and breaking things. And Max is just sitting there going like, hold on, no, these are my things that you're breaking. You can't break this. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to have a go at you. And the remarkable thing is that he wins. Like he has such success in these complaints, like having worked in like government and like complaint handling functions in the past, there's this kind of class of person who is going to be angry at everything you do as a government organization or as a company. He just strikes me as that person kind of just sniping in who always has this, like everything you do is like, oh, you know, don't know about that. You shouldn't have done that. You shouldn't have done this. And then he goes to court and he wins, like, every time. It's remarkable. It's interesting you say that about that different mindset as well because he talks about the fact that 
In the US, there is actually a bit of a culture of where you do have rights, you're not afraid to go to court over them. There's that litigious culture, right? And what he actually says is we have the strong rights in Europe around our privacy, but nobody ever goes and gets them enforced. And he was sort of seeing that he felt that there wasn't a culture of enforcement. And there's a quote, I think, where he says, like, I'm the one European that actually enforces his rights. And if I can do this, you know, as a student in my home office, then, you know, that, like you can see how absurd the whole situation is. And it's interesting to hear just more broadly some of his thinking and his philosophy around privacy, which doesn't necessarily come through in this particular judgment because this tends to be about US government surveillance. But you're right, like he does have those same philosophical views around privacy, so many that we have discussed, you know, these kind of ideas of accountability for organizations as opposed to like individuals having to know technology inside out and enforce their own rights. It should be up to organizations like building codes and and privacy as being a kind of a meta right, I thought was interesting. He says that people ask him like, well, what's, what's the sort of deal with privacy? What does it grant you, you know? And he talks about it being a, an enabler for other rights, like just the freedom to express yourself and this idea of, you know, that we talk about a lot, which is the fact that you can be private allows you to go and seek out information, connect with people. He, he talked about it being instrumental in his own experience. He sort of came out at the age of 14. But, you know, prior to that, that sense of privacy to go out and connect with people in different groups and have that sort of that safe space around you is is kind of important. So, you know, he's got quite an interesting take on it, but just that firebrand attitude. I wish we had one in here, you know, in Australia. Yeah, yeah, for sure, right? There's so much value in that activism. You know, we've got a few digital rights groups that are up and about, but the way our laws are structured at the moment actually makes it quite difficult. You know, you have to make your complaint to the Australian Information Commissioner, and then after that, you kind of lose control over it. There's not a direct right to, say, bring a complaint against a Australian organization yourself. That's actually something that's in the proposals for the reform to the Privacy Act to make a bit more space for individuals or class actions or activist groups to take direct action in this kind of way. So maybe we'll get some law reform and, you know, there'll be a position vacant for an Australian Max Schrems. Yeah, may a thousand Max Schrems bloom. Um, I think one lesson I would take from it, though, is his sense of persistence as well, because he, uh, there was an interview where I think someone, you talked about Snowden quite a few times and they sort of said, you know, do you see yourself as kind of akin to Snowden? Because you're kind of in that same ballpark, you're doing the same things. And he really pushes back on the idea because he's sort of like, you know, Snowden has taken some genuine personal risk and had to sort of act, you know, very much outside and against the system. And he's like, I'm just... I'm well, like very conservatively working within the system. There's a law. I have rights under that law. I feel like the law uh, is not being observed. So I put in a complaint and he's just persistent. Like, you know, he talks about calling the Irish DPC like every hour until they get back to him. And, and then I think it was just like his 23rd complaint that led to Safe Harbor coming down. So he was like two dozen complaints into his journey before Schrems won. So. 
it's you know he's a very persistent guy need someone quite dogged <laughs> to replicate that that persistence i'm torn between like on the one hand i imagine working at the irish data protection commission and like what a nightmare but on the other hand like good on him right he's yeah he, he he's correct that you know he has these rights and ultimately you know the courts agree with him and yeah it's um i think something quite admirable about persistence so with persistence in mind um maybe we'll uh record another podcast next week sounds good i'll be there for that speak to you then <laughs> talk then thanks so much bye